gentleman next door always wanted to know where Sidi Barani was. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And, well, today we have a particularly special episode. As our regular listeners will know, we always try and feature some of the stories and background around Prisoners of War and how their actions in the war came about, how they were enabled to do various things. And we always try and interview people who have particularly special knowledge, and we're very fortunate to do a number of firsts in this episode. The first one is we have not one but two guests with us who are the family of Staff Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy Smith. We'll come on to his story in particular later, but I never thought we would get witches on broomsticks into a podcast about prisoners of war, and all will become evident, I think, going forward. So welcome to Sarah and Barbara, who are respectively Jimmy Smith's daughter and wife. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I think you're the best people to be able to tell our listeners who Jimmy was. So please, over to you. Tell us about Jimmy Smith. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So... Dad was born in Liverpool in 1918, brought up in Blackpool where he won the bonniest baby of Blackpool competition and we have the certificate that he always kept. He absolutely adored his mother, Hilda Stone, who was allegedly from the Stone's ginger wine family. Hence the bottle on the bar. (laughs) Which is amongst many fantastic medals, paperwork and everything else that we're dying to get into. It's wonderful to see such things. He very sadly lost his father when he was 11. His father was called Fred Smith and Fred had a stall at Blackpool Pleasure Beach so he died in 1929. It was a very poor family. Hilda didn't have any money to buy him clothes for school. They did however have an Airedale who used to walk dad to school. He was called Paddy and wait for him outside school to walk him home again in the evening. (laughs) So very poor household. He won a scholarship however to Blackpool Grammar School so dad was was always really quite bright and he swam for Blackpool practicing in the big open air pool there. Um, And he won third prize in the school choir. Yes. Which we have the certificate for. (laughs) (laughs) As a teenager, he went on to ballroom dancing, of course, being in Blackpool, and won a gold medal in formation ballroom dancing in the Tower Ballroom. And he remained an excellent dancer his whole life whenever mum could get him on the dance floor. One for all the Strictly fans there. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) When he left school, he went to work at a solicitor's firm, initially as a cashier and to start his training as an article clerk. His uncle had told him never to take his jacket off to go to work, and that was something he applied all through his life. Mm. He hated his army years, but he, he had to stop his training to be a solicitor when he was taken in the army. And his mother had lost her first child from meningitis, his sister, at the age of three. So she made him promise that he'd come home from the war alive. But he told us that only two of his classmates actually survived the war from Blackpool Grammar School. He got his cousin Harry yes. strikes into the his unit. Yes, he got he got Harry into a safe job as well. Unfortunately, as Mum found out later, he 
he let Dad down quite badly. Yes, he was apparently had his hands in the till. He, as far as I understand, he allocated money to the resistance groups and he decided to pocket some of it. And he was court-martialed in Belgium. Yeah, and Dad never forgave him. He never spoke to him again, even though he stayed in touch with Harry's sister all his life. Mm. He never spoke to Harry again. He went into the Royal Engineers, which made us laugh a lot because he couldn't even change a plug. We have absolutely no idea how he ended up in the Royal Engineers. And his 21st birthday, he famously talked about digging trenches. Yes. Um, And that was, so that would have been 1939. He had a friend in the army who was called Pip, who was a fantastic pianist. And Dad always told a story about if you were asked if you did anything like, do you play the piano? You never volunteered any information because you'd find yourself moving a piano if you volunteered that you played the piano. So he always said you always kept your mouth shut and just got on with things. Mm-hmm. He told us very little about his war years. Well, you've just um, you've just said he you know he thought he would keep his mouth shut. Yeah, so he didn't get anything to it. So you're not surprising me when you said that very little was spoken about yes. what he did. Yeah. Yeah, we knew he was in military intelligence in some way. We knew he was in France, Belgium and Holland. We knew also that Airy Neve was his commanding officer. Yes, I've never seen Jimmy cry, of course. Men didn't in those days. And when he heard the news, he really did cry. And he said what that man went through in the war and the bloody IRA got him. Yeah, it really, it really yeah, did upset it him. It upset yeah. him terribly. I watched a programme on D-Day uh, with him and I said to him, did you go over on D-Day? And he said, no, I went over a few days afterwards. But he wouldn't tell me any more about that. He told us he was shot at in France by a German plane and he threw himself into some bushes to escape. He was stationed at Fulmer Hall with Americans and at Wilton Park with Americans. And he always used to talk about them having better rations, mm-hmm. but that they ate their savoury and their sweet off the same plate at the same time. The inhumanity. I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently they were the people to go to for chocolate. <laughs> so, so there was, were good sides of that. He always gave money to the Salvation Army for his cups of tea on cold railway stations during the war. And he, he told a story that he was driven to help out at the liberation of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. But he never went inside the camp. And he said to us that, that, it, that he was always grateful that he'd never... I guess he saw enough on the outside for him. But his driver asked him for permission to go inside and then came outside and was was physically sick. We knew he visited Baker Street and Metropole buildings and in Oxford Circus above the old Peter Robinson building. There were some offices there that he also visited and Bletchley Park as well, he mentioned. Um, He was in the tower at Bletchley, went to the tower, the high tower bit at Bletchley Park. And we believe there was a communications room for MI9 in the top of the building. So you mentioned there, actually, for the first time, MI9. Yes. Because it's very obvious that this is the direction that we're heading in. It has a very interesting army career there to be able to move around relatively freely and in some interesting places. But you weren't aware that it was MI9 at all, were you? No, we'd we'd never heard of MI9. And actually, just to mention on the Metropole buildings, the address his mother had in her address book for him was to send via a certain room at Metropole buildings. When we used to go to London a lot, he used to pass places, the Baker Street and Metropole, these places. Oh, I was there in the war, he used to say. And, you know, I took no notice, really. (laughs) 
<laughs> unfortunately, now. <laughs> in the early 1960s, he handed Mum a badge and she offered to put it on a blazer for him, but never bothered in the end and stuck it in his sewing box. In her sewing box. So that badge ended up as something very special. But again, we didn't know at the time. This being the witch's badge. The witches on the the boomstick. The three witches badge. Three witches. (laughs) Absolutely. So he had a small bookcase by his chair up to pretty much the day he died. And in it were three books. Well, there were were a few books in there. But um, the three books in particular was MI9 by Foote and Langley. Confessions of Faith by Peter The third book was a book called Six Faces of Courage by Professor Michael Foote. Mm -hmm. He handed that to me one day and I guess he felt he couldn't talk about his war because he was never actually released from the Official Secrets Act. But he said to me, please, can you read this? So dutifully, I did. How old were you at the time? I must have been in my early 20s. Okay, yeah. So I sat on the train and read it and I handed it back to him. And when I handed it back to him, he said, you remember the story about André de Jong from the Comet Line? And I said, yes. And so he said, I was the auntie writing postcards to her from the UK. And I managed to get a car down to Dover that got to her. And then I tried so hard to get him to talk more and he wouldn't say a thing. That's a wonderful detail, though. <laughs> Andrew de, de Jong's just a, a legend. I know. Yeah. This field. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. It set up the comet line at what, 16, something like that? Yes. yes. And yes. You, know, yes. You, you, you read any report that mentions her and she, they worship the ground she walked on. Yeah. Uh, every escaper who ever had yeah. to deal I with her, or a Vader for that matter, who ever had to deal with her, just yeah. sings yeah. her praises. Yeah. So that, that, that's brilliant. And it's quite um, interesting that they were directly communicating mm-hmm. with her mm-hmm. via postcards from Auntie. So you mentioned Peter Baker. Who, who, who was Peter Baker? He was a, a MP. He was part of the MI9 unit. Unit, yeah. yes. And he, I just went out to dinner with them one evening. I think we must have been when we were first married in Kensington High Street. I thought he was a client of Jimmy's, but I've since, of course, found out that he was the last MP to be, is it dismissed from the House? Yeah, Commons. Yeah, for forgery. For, for forgery. Yeah. Mm. I've actually read Confessions of Faith. I find it quite difficult to read, not because it was harrowing, just because I didn't think it was that brilliantly written. No, no. It's not, I agree. It's yeah. not a great... It's not, no, it's not... A, I wouldn't say go and read it the no. same way I would Fight Another Day by Jimmy Langley. A- I mean, absolutely. Fantastic book. Or, or they have their exits. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't understand why he had a book in his bookcase for so many years confessions of faith when he only went to church for births marriages and deaths he wasn't religious at all Mm -hmm. yeah so effectively whilst really not knowing what he had done yes in a way he was kind of keeping you in a circle of people absolutely knew absolutely absolutely what he'd done yes it was then and this is the exciting bit is picking together yeah, these yes. parts and then how even now you're finding that this is all coming together yes. and telling a bigger story. Yes. yes. It's interesting. Dad seemed to stay in touch with people so he was he became a solicitor in the West End. Yes. He had a, one or two famous clients but in particular Spike Milligan and of course he was in the same unit as Michael Bentine and you just don't pick up two goons no, by, no. by accident. And Spike Milligan still owes my husband 11 guineas. <laughs> <laughs> 
if the estate of Spike Milligan is listening now, we'll, we'll be hunting you down for, for full payment. It's interesting you mentioned that you, you don't tend to get two goons in, in your life, yeah, though, because yeah, I, I can actually yeah. complete the set because my mother grew up on the same street as Harry Seacombe. Oh, lovely. So, uh, Dad always said can... Spike Milligan was completely mad. Yeah. He yeah, always yeah, said yeah, he was completely yeah, mad. Yeah. He also had Patsy Rowlands from the Carry On films as a okay. client and uh, Ridley Scott in the early days. Really? Yeah, yeah. Mm. That is very much. <laughs> <laughs> Just after the war, he came back. He studied at Guildford Law School. He became a solicitor in Southport. During the war, he married a nurse called Joyce Walker from Blackpool, and they divorced after the war. He played golf at Blackpool North Shore, and he was he was a good golfer. He was a single-figure handicapped golfer. And then he came down to Sandy Lodge Golf Club near Northwood, where he was captain of the club and a director for many years. Do you want to briefly talk about when you first met him yes the neighbors that i grew up next door to in east coat were almost a second family to me i lost my father at 13 they were a second family and the daughter there she was a nurse in the war and she went to blackpool to nurse and through this uh, she met a man called john bowton and they eventually married and i was nine at the time when they married and i was her bridesmaid at um, and they were married up in a church and it was then that I first knew Jimmy Smith because my father died when I was 13 the bride was Joan Kent the neighbours were called Kent and the bride was Joan Kent she was very kind the pair of them were very kind to me after my father died and had me up in Blackpool for quite a few holidays and part of the set there was Jimmy and Joyce Smith, Jimmy's first wife. And being a 13-year-old, I wasn't allowed to call them by their Christian names, and they didn't want me to call them Mr and Mrs Smith, sounded too formal. So I ended up calling him Uncle Jimmy and Auntie Joyce. <laughs> Little did we know that after splitting up with Joyce, he'd moved down south, he'd move in in the other half of the semi-detached house to mum. Yeah. And they got married in 1961. 61. And then had my, my brother Simon, Simon a year later. 62, yep. and you in 1965. He then moved his offices from Southport after qualifying He had to pass his exams. He had, I believe, seven parts of the solicitor's exams and he knew that he wouldn't get a second chance. He didn't have enough money to do it. He had to pass those exams in those days. The whole lot, if you failed in one, you failed the whole lot. But I think now you can take it in bits. He also wanted to be part of the bar, but he couldn't afford the exams to be part of the bar, could he? No, no. Anyway, he started off with a practice in Southport. Yes. And then after a while, he thought, well, this isn't getting me anywhere. And he moved down to London. He had an office in Conduit Street in the West End. And he was the solicitor mainly to a property tycoon called Edward Lotary. And Lotaryville in South Africa is actually named after Edward, who became my brother's godfather. And they did the development of the, the station and the parades of shops along the Metropolitan Line. And he also did, he was really proud of Castrol House in Baker Street, where he did all the legal work for, and Colville, Colville in, in Leicestershire. Leicestershire. He eventually moved his practice to Watford mm. and then died after quite a long illness in 2006. 
I mean, my word, that's quite a story in itself. But obviously, that's what you've been exposed to. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course, since 2006, you both have exerted considerable energy into actually now finding what he actually did, which is pretty special, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. So we found in his papers, pretty much straight after he died, a testimonial. And the testimonial was from Jimmy Langley and mentioning the war. We also found a wooden yo-yo, a packet of safety pins, a button. We found out he'd given a collar stud with a compass in to my brother, which we knew nothing about at the time. We found an authority to interview and interrogate and a small envelope of photographs and some odd addresses. And that was the little stash hidden in his desk. The mind must have boggled. It did. It did. Well, we didn't even know MI9 existed. So, And there was nothing on the internet in those days. The only thing it pulled up was the book, which we then, a picture of the book, which we then recognised from the bookcase. When I found the packet of safety pins all wrapped up in <laughs> elastic bands in an envelope, I was on my own. I just said to myself, what an earth, you stupid man. Why on earth have you got a packet of safety pins with the the yo-yo and all the other things? And apparently it's a story about the Marseille people. They went out with badges of safety pins on their clothes so that the Germans didn't know what the French was for safety pins and they were able to go around showing that they hated the Germans and Jimmy played with his yo-yo a lot and unfortunately I've lost the yo-yo but I don't know where that's gone to but it was a little wooden yo-yo just like the book described Mm -hmm. these people had these things and it was Marseille that they did this so effectively, I mean, this wonderful collection of bits and pieces that you found, and some of which is, is, is with us here, yeah. all basically relates to certain elements of the escape lines yes, and yes. the movement absolutely. of prisoners of war during absolutely. the war. Yes. So he's kept just little mementos and yes. trinkets yes. that on yes. their own yes. mean yes. nothing, yes. but to him yes. and now the story that you're developing yes. really yes. means yes. something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The, the other thing is mum, mum was reading a book and it mentioned the Three Witches badge, which was the first time we came across this badge. Yes. And she suddenly thought, I've got one of those. And there it was, still in the sewing basket where it had been for years. But what we've realised since is in his bar, and he had lots of clients back, lots of people from the golf club back to the bar, he hung three witches from the ceiling. And he always used to refer to them as the wife, her mother, and her mother's sister. But we kind of think they meant something else to him as well. Very subtle. (laughs) But he had a separate room that was his bar and he would hold court there. I mean, a really a big personality. Mm -hmm. Um, Huge personality. I was just sort of in the background most of our marriage because he was the breadwinner. And that's being 17 years older than me. You know, that's how they were. Mm -hmm. I was the housewife and brought up the children and everything. And he loved entertaining. And perhaps that's why he sort of logged on to me because I was in catering. (laughs) (laughs) I I could cook. (laughs) Who knows? So you say he was very social. Obviously, he'd hung these three witches in the corner. Do you think he ever bought people from his army days through or even people he'd worked with? Or do you think he kept it all very separate? He kept his life in Blackpool very separate. He would never tell anybody down south that he'd been married before. But also, he took you to a party in Beaconsfield. Who did you meet there? Clement Attlee. 
That's quite a person to meet at a party. In fact, quite a party. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, his client was Clement Hatley's uh, son-in-law, so uh, that's how he got there. But I think he might have been hoping that somebody might recognise the witches because we had people from the war, from the golf club, socially round, particularly Uncle Bob. Yeah, who was a Bob colonel. Elliot, yeah. He was a colonel in the parachute regiment. regiment yeah. And we were friendly with, with he and his wife for many, many years. The other interesting thing is, in his MI9 book, there was a note. And the note oh, said, yes. please pass this on to our friend from MI6. Which we found quite interesting. He was working at Hammerson's at the time. Yes, it was on... And he ha- gave yeah. it to somebody at Hammerson's party. Yeah, so... He was in the West End. We're in the 1950s, late 1950s. And there's this note in this book. And we don't know. We're curious, shall we say. We've never found out who the friend was. No. And I've even and tried various names from Hammerson's group, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I can't come to any, can't find anything. But it does suggest he at least kept in touch with people. Yes, yes. Um, absolutely. Yes, yeah. in, in a small way. So we were basically looking for information. Yes. We requested his military records, which to our surprise then mentioned him being in MI14, which was Pigeons, I believe. But then from January, the early days in January 1941, right from the beginning, he was moved over to MI9. He was at Wilton Park, we believe with Norman Crockett, for quite a large amount of time. So, of course, we did cover MI9 in a great deal of depth with Helen Fry in the first episode of Series 4. So if anyone does want to go back and listen to that episode to get more information on the background of who MI9 were, what they did, some of the characters, because we certainly talk about Norman Crockett in that episode, please do go back and listen to that episode. That's great. We took the badge up to the Imperial War Museum, but didn't really get anywhere. We couldn't find anyone that was really interested in looking at it or in looking at Dad's military records with us or helping us at all. And then we were put in touch with a lady called Sarah Patterson, who was working in the archives there. And she got us into Wilton Park just before the outbuildings were demolished because it's now been built as a housing estate. And she got us in there and we were able to take photos walking around. So there on the website we started, shameless plug for the website, is, is that okay? Please do. So it's mi9-is9.com. And just to, for our listeners, that is the website that you and your mother have put together about your father's story, what yes. you've researched, and obviously where people can get in touch if they yes. have yes. information to, to further your research, and which is always very active and very live at the moment. And people have certainly got in touch. Yes, they have. And the other reason for doing it was to provide a central amount of information, particularly about Intelligence School 9. We found out from his military records that he was in Intelligence School 9X, which was responsible for getting the parcels of goodies and compasses and escape kit out to the prisoner of war camps. But it was also responsible for helping set up and support the escape lines. So really, whilst, you know, interesting that we have, we cover a number of NCOs and things like that, whereby, you know, they carry out the large number of escapes. In this instance, and why obviously we've delighted to feature on here, is that we have an NCO whose direct actions were to the benefit of tens of thousands of prisoners Mm -hmm. who either plan escapes, go on escapes, or successfully get home. Mm -hmm. So what... Mm -hmm. 
what a career to be involved in. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, if you go back and remember the promise to his mother that he'd survived the war, well, Beaconsfield probably wasn't the most dangerous place to be to be stationed in. No, absolutely not. And to pick up on what Tony's just said as well, for us, it, it's wonderful to kind of look behind the veil. We, we often talk about them using compasses, maps, various escape paraphernalia, and we make reference to the fact that quite often they were sourced from MI9, but mm. it's absolutely brilliant to mm. see, as I say, behind the veil, behind the intelligence fail the official secrets act wasn't a joke to these people and by the sounds of it your your father and husband adhered to it rigidly to his dying day but what we as a podcast are seeing here is the other side it's the the pipeline feeding in this escape paraphernalia that we know from the escapes that we've covered really did make a difference Mm -hmm. Uh, you know the the number of them that used these Maps, compasses, yes, inks, yeah. dyes, you name it. It was yeah. a colossal difference that it made to them. So it's, it's wonderful to see yeah. it come full circle from our perspective. Yeah. Sure. So, somehow, I can remember as young, my aunt managed to get one of these maps, pure silk, which was really something in those days. I can remember seeing it. In fact, she made some cami knickers out of her. And the gentleman next door always wanted to know where Sidi Barani was. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tony needs a moment. (laughs) So returning back to IS-9, you said that he started there in January 1941. Yes. We really don't know how he moved into intelligence, but if you look at the headquarters administration staff chart that we've since got from the National Archives, nearly all the administration staff are Royal Engineers. So we're wondering if they all moved over together, but we, we don't know. It's something else we need to explore. We've been helped by some extraordinary coincidences. Yes. Many years ago, I wanted to find a school friend of mine and I wrote to the Lost and Found column in um, uh, the Daily Mail on a Saturday morning. And I thought I'd do the same with Jimmy's pictures. And I sent the um, pictures up to the... And they published it. They published two pictures. Yeah, we found about five, five didn't of, we? Of yes, Jimmy's pictures. Yeah, yes, in, a, yes, in a small envelope. Yes, We'd never seen yes, them before. Yes. And eventually I got a letter from a lady in Lancaster. On the Lost and Found column, we explained that Jimmy was at Bergen-Belsen and just various other things about his army career. And she wrote to me and she said her husband uh, drove a few people to Bergen-Belsen and he went in and when he came out it was so awful that he was violently sick. And this is a story that Sarah and I have grown up with. Yeah, we we heard Mm -hmm. the other half of this story. It's quite... That, Quite yes, incredible. Yes. And the lady that contacted me was Jimmy's driver's wife. Wow. Widow. And she had photos. She had, um, so we exchanged photographs and, and things. She had photographs of Jimmy and I had photographs of Brian. They were Brian and Marion Park yeah. from Lancaster. Wow. Quite quite incredible Quite incredible really and we I, we went up there or i i went up there to see her one day and we just sort of had a lovely chat one day with all her memorabilia that she had she had a lot more than i did and we just sort of looked at each other and we said i wonder if they're watching us <laughs> It was just such a weird mm-hmm. coincidence. 
But the morning that the photos were in the Daily Mail, she went, she walked down to the local news That's agent right, to get her Daily yeah. Telegraph and they'd sold out. Mm. So she bought a mail. Mm. Now, had she not done that, no. we'd, we'd never mm-hmm. have met her. No. And she no. had a copy that, again, there's photos on the website. She had a copy of the last MI9 newsletter. Oh, and they'd yes, taken yeah. the witches' hats and broomsticks and turned them into bowler hats and umbrellas wow. on the top of I, it. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's all very subtle, isn't it? It's like it's yes. the club that only if you know what it is, yeah, absolutely, then you're in, absolutely, yes. And of course, yes. you guys have been having to yeah. find all this out. Yes, yes. brilliant. Yes. yes, there's a cartoon that was sent to us, yeah, which is absolutely fantastic, and is is about the again picture of it on the website. But there's there's people in a car. And when you look at the letters on the car, which is A-O-E-W-A, numerology value of those letters is 18. One and eight is nine. There's also an S plus Y-N, which is three plus one plus five, which also adds up to nine. So they're playing games with us nearly nearly all the time. We, we just find that quite fascinating. Do you think he wanted you to find out eventually? This is difficult to answer, actually. I think he wanted to I forget his war years. He, yes, he, he really he didn't like the war. He hated it. I just don't know. Some of the things I've found out, I've, I've asked this question lots of times, and I really don't know the answer to that because he'd no idea of computers and, and mm. the way we can find out things these days. No idea at all about it all. So I, ju- I just don't know the answer to that, I'm afraid. I, of course, never no, met him, but no. I, I'm just wondering if by asking you to read the book, that yeah, might have, was yeah, just, yes. just enough of a kernel to say, even if it's when I've passed. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. how it reads to me, and is that he was just leaving something there for you to pick up the yes, thread yeah, at a later yeah, date and yeah. just saying, be aware of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he knew, you know, he was he was 88 when he died. He did know he was getting older and he didn't clear things out. He left things for us, which is quite, you know, the testimonial and things were just, you yeah. know, genius yeah. to leave for yeah. us. Yeah. The other person that came to see us was a gentleman called John Morley. He found us on the website, on the internet, from one of the photographs we have, the group photographs. So the Daily Mail didn't enlighten us as to where the photograph, the group photograph was taken or who the people were. I sent it to Sarah Patterson at the Imperial War Museum to say, could you identify whether this was taken at Bletchley Park or Wilton Park? Because we were quite interested to see if he was at Bletchley Park rather than visited it. And she came back and she, her feeling was that it was at Wilton Park. But something by seeing that photo hit in her memory that there was a scrapbook in the archives of the Imperial War Museum. And she dug it out and she thought she might be able to match some faces because there were photographs in that scrapbook. What she found was the exact same photo, but annotated as to who each person was. And that's how we've got the names. John Morley then, searching for his father on the internet, found his father on that photograph. And he was listed as topo draftsman on the clerical establishment chart. He went on to work on ordnance survey maps. John going through his father's stuff after he died... And there was a map book there with a load of signatures in. It just happened that John recognised some of them. I think it was Winterbottom was the name from his dad's, one of his dad's commanding officers. And there's 80 names in that book of MI9 people, including my father's signature. 
and it was nearly thrown out. That would have been a sin, as I far know. as I'm concerned. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but what a find. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. John Morley came for lunch with us and brought his father's British Empire medal. But he says there's no records of that medal having been awarded. But he's got the actual medal. Just fascinating. I was also contacted by a delightful gentleman in New Zealand who, as a 10-year-old, lived in Nijmegen. And he told us that, as a child, his house was taken over by part of the Three Witches unit and they had to live in the cellar while the soldiers were in the rest of the house. He also sent us a picture of his brother in a cart that the soldiers made out of pram wheels and wood, as you did in those days. And on the back of it is painted one of the witches. This Nick has been so kind and and helped in all sorts of information, apart from being an email friend as well. What fascinates us, and we haven't quite got to the bottom of it, is this Three Witches badge. Somebody said it could have been a field badge. There seem to have been very few of them. There certainly are very few existing now. And we do have a copy of a memo from Mary Neve decommissioning it. And asking for it to be taken off everything. Is it a Macbeth reference? That's what people have suggested. Or Road to Endor as well was mentioned, wasn't it? Of course, yes. Which is a First World War. Yes. Yes. But we we just don't know. We only know he was in Holland from me doing a trip when I was at the age of 10. And I got back and he said, aren't the streets clean there? And that's the only reference we know that he must have been to Holland because he was never in Holland in any other part of his life. But through this, you've obviously had, you said there was some interesting addresses in the book. Have you gone and retraced some of his steps that you know of as part of your research? That's what I've tried to do. Fantastic. Very much, but you know, I'm limited at my age, unfortunately. Particularly, there's a, there's a photograph taken in a street in, in Brussels. And there's a photograph of a whole unit that was stationed there and then of Dad with a few people. And we were able to replicate that with myself, my mother and my son in the same doorway. And that that was something quite special to do. There's an address in Brussels that I'm dying to find out, but I can't find out (laughs) anything about it at the moment. Uh, Rue Weary. Rue Weary, yeah. Weary. Yeah. Oh. There's all these little pieces that we're still trying to put together. Yes, odd addresses and phone numbers. And he was a very definite man. And the scraps of paper that he's left me with all these odd little bits don't really go with his character because he was a solicitor. Here. He wanted everything laid out, laid out. and in order yes, yes. and catalogued. Uh, yes, and yet he's yes. left you clues that are, have no yes. context to each other. No, yeah. no, no. Oh, fascinating. And when, <laughs> when, he, when he set up these Vanstead yeah. quarters, yeah. everything was filed and, it, mm. you know, that's how he was. But not... Not with the bits he's left me. (laughs) So when he went over as part of Intelligence School 9 WEA after D-Day, they were basically following the front line. They were picking up escapers and evaders that were hiding. They were also talking to escape line workers, making sure that they were recompensed for their support during the war. But this is where his card to interrogate an interview is actually linked. The date is the liberation of Bergen-Belsen. So clearly it was issued to him for that, where they were trying to work out collaborators of very quickly jump sides. 
and they were trying to work out whether they were people that had actually helped the escape lines or whether they were people that were helping the Germans making sure the right people were rewarded. They were doing all of that. In Jimmy Lang's book, Fight Another Day, he talks about part of the unit going off to Fretval in the forest. There was a mass of prisoners of war and part going to Paris. Now, Dad always said he'd never been to Paris. So the only joined up thinking we've been able to do is if he didn't go to Paris, then possibly he went the other way. And we know Airy Neve was there. So that, that kind of all adds up. I think, if I remember correctly, Peter Baker's book talks about going to Fretval as well. Right. So that might link back to what you mm-hmm. said about meeting him. Certainly, Neve went to Fretival, yep. and I'm fairly certain Peter Baker talks about it in Confessions of Faith, mm-hmm. about going to Fretival. So, oh. And there must have been at least a few more, because they took a bus, if I remember correctly. Yes. And so there was clearly room for more. Yeah. And I absolutely know he didn't go to Paris, okay. because yeah. he never yes. went to Paris no. in his life. I tried and tried yeah. to get yeah. him to go there, and he just wasn't interested, although he loved France. You did mention a name there. So obviously we spoke about Airy Neve at the start, but you also mentioned Langley Mm -hmm. there. What was your father's link with Langley? I believe would have been his commanding officer in the early days. And then again later. So I suspect he went off to Wilton Park and left Langley in London and was under Norman Crockett and working with Norman Crockett at that stage. But I believe he then returned to Langley and it makes sense to have the testimonial at the end. He clearly stayed in touch with him. He had his address, his home address in his address book. Yes, that would make sense because Langley was certainly in charge of IS-9 WEA, the Mm. body that went over, as you say, just after D-Day and followed the front line. Mm. If I remember correctly, he was in charge of that. Mm. I think Neve was the commanding officer on the ground and Langley was his superior. Mm. So that would all tie up. Yeah, I was just going to say that the World War II trip that I took myself on, it was a just fascinating trip. And I, we went to Colditz and I was able to sort of walk around where I presumed Airy Neve had walked around and escaped from. We also went to Stalogluf III. It was all so moving. There's only the ground and bits of buildings left now at Stalagluf Three, But they explained to me where the kitchen was and where the there was a sort of a lake where they had the water that they used and they used to make paper boats and sail them, you know, and, and bet on the who would win. And I went to the dams and was able to stand on the breach. So fascinating. Mm. But I didn't learn anything about the three witches, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I did it. (laughs) It certainly sounds that in your later life, you've suddenly discovered another life. It's kept me going. (laughs) And you are, you're going on this journey now that your husband did. It must be incredible to go and experience that. It is, it is. Because it's the same time and place effectively. Yes. But there's that information going, but you have this connection obviously through the the clues that have been left. Yes. To try and work it out. Yes. Which must be yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And obviously, you, Sarah, yes. you picked up the challenge as well. Yes, yes, yes. yes. It's, yes. it's brilliant. I mean, yes. I think it's an incredible story. It's amazing to be able to come and talk to you guys, particularly to give first-hand accounts of what your father and your husband mm-hmm. was like as a person. And it's, it's obviously, it, it's very out of keeping, as you say, for somebody whose yeah. working life was to be professional and keep accurate mm-hmm. records and deal with fact mm-hmm. yes. and statements. Mm-hmm to then have left such little clues that the more you look in, the more have a little meaning, are actually more significant than anything else. It's incredibly clever. There's always a little corner that you want to go around to find out more. 
Did he have a mischievous item? Because that's how this comes across. If Did he have a mischievous um, side? He had a difficult side. We, oh, very difficult <laughs> side. We had a lot of fun in Omer. He was a fantastic husband. And as I said previously, he was the breadwinner and I was sort of the housewife at home. Do you remember Rumpole of the Old Bailey? Oh, yes. We yeah. used to, yes that was yeah. my father, OK? Yeah. Manual yeah. typewriters yeah. in the office until I tried to get him to upgrade to at least an electric one. Yeah. Smoked a pipe. Gave up cigarette long coming in the, in the 60s, early 60s. But gave up smoking when the doctor told him he'd had a heart attack and asked him if he smoked and he said not any longer. <laughs> So he was to the point and he could understand when he was given advice he needed yes. to Yes, yeah, yeah, to. absolutely. But he did lots of fighting for what he believed was right. I could never tell him what to do or anything. I just sort of had to skirt around things with him. He was coughing one morning in early marriage uh, on the sitting. And I said, you and those cigarettes, you're coughing your heart out. You're so stupid. And from that day on, he stopped cigarettes. Couldn't tell him to stop cigarettes. That's incredible. So he sounds like a fabulous man. And... He, he was, as far as I was concerned. Mm. I had some lovely gifts from him, presents mm. and things, and he was just a super husband. And strong character. Strong, very strong character. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And so, of course, obviously, you are still keen to learn. You have all oh, of these yes, levels. Oh, yes, absolutely. And else. So I think what we should do is remind our listeners again of the website, which details everything that you know up to date yes, and also how yes, to yes. get in touch if people can yes. share some light mm. on any of these items. Any, so you have questions. Yes. I've seen that you have points that you raise. You say, we're still looking at this. Yes, we're still yes. looking at this. If you could remind us again of the website that you have and also what in particular are you looking at right now that you would like to have some clarity if anyone out there can help or understand what are you looking for right now sure so the website is mi9-is9.com i think there's a couple of things anything about the three witches badge how it was used why it was why it was used that would be really helpful the other thing that nick in nyamegan's mother drew a lot of pictures of the soldiers and we don't know who any of them are and there's pictures on the website of all of this and it would be really useful if anyone recognizes anyone is that prisoners of war going down the invasion no line? these are the soldiers, soldiers. in mi9 yes. Right. yes yes, yes. Um, but we don't have names for any of those as yet mm. and they they're we, really we good pictures think we're we think one might be jimmy but we're not we're not 100 sure. sure yeah we can't yeah. tell I think that's absolutely fantastic. It's been a real pleasure to have you both on, Sarah and Barbara, <laughs> to be able to talk to people who can give first-hand accounts of something mm. that's so different, but yet so important to all of the rest of all the escapes that we've covered over these series. A lot of these guys would have been aided by items that were being provided by by your father and husband. Yeah. So I think it's mm. absolutely wonderful. I just can't thank you enough for, for this input. Well, well thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much yes. for the opportunity. Yes. Been fantastic. I, I have nothing more to add on. <laughs> thank you very much. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.